Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz. We're talking about border wars. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. How is the dry climate of Colorado treating you? Um, Colorado is uh, treating me well, and it is dry and sunny and about 85 degrees. So, you know, it's, it's really pretty good. How, how is, are you, are you in a swamp or on a mountain? I can't. I am just, I'm just sort of at the, I'm in the almost, I'm about five miles from the geographic center of the state, which puts me just below the mountains and just above the swamps, but I can't (laughs) tell the difference right now. It's 104 (laughs) degrees and hot, you know, um, and I just sort of live with it. Right. I, I feel like I've been put in a hot box in one of those 70s prison exploitation movies that take place in Texas. Yeah, so difference between Arkansas and Texas, minimal, is what you're telling me. Well, they wouldn't tell you that, but I agree. (laughs) Well, the Pine Curtain starts about 20 miles east of here and goes all the way through East Texas. Well, there you go. East Uh, Texas uh, and extreme western Arkansas, of course, being the home of the Falk Monster, which on some show someday I'll do an episode about. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of 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 a pseudo-cryptid, how's my demon horse doing out in Denver? Just Doing outside great. of Denver. Uh, has actually killed people. I was going to ask what the body count is now. Yeah, he has actually killed people. He's referring to what is affectionately called Blucifer, which greets you as you enter and exit Denver International. <laughs> there is no way to enter or exit without seeing it. It's something to look up in addition to everything else about the Denver International. Okay, yeah, yeah, a few months ago, I got stuck in Denver twice, and uh, <laughs> I had to see that guy. They still won't let me in the tunnels, though, but I'm working on it. <laughs> So we're here to talk, we're continuing the Missouri border war, and we've come to the part of the discussion where we have to talk about everybody's favorite ethnicity who listens to this podcast, the Germans. Right. Yeah, we're talking about them because they are decisive in a political sense, not necessarily a military one, but a political sense in the state of Missouri. And they are the reason that the things that will set up in weeks to come about the Kansas conflict that precedes the opening of the Civil War, as well as the guerrilla warfare that fills Missouri during the Civil War, and then the lawlessness that happens thereafter. All of that takes the shape that it does because of the German population, which re- which is largely not there, the closest German settlement to a lot of the things that we've talked about in previous weeks and that we will talk about is Concordia, Missouri, which is you know obviously closer to Kansas City than Perry County is, but it's not militarily significant so much as demographically and therefore politically significant. So that's why we're talking about them in addition to covering some other things that I think will just be generally helpful to the audience to understand. Yeah. And so Germans are going to come into America in a couple of major waves. I mean, there's always a boat docking here and there in the decades between these two periods, but there's two major, major periods of German immigration. So Adam, why don't you tell us about the first one? Yeah, the first wave is the one that we mentioned a couple weeks back about colonial times really mostly coming to the middle colonies, especially Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And those folks are going to come largely from the Rhineland, so that's western and southwestern Germany, as well as the other side of the Rhine River, places like Switzerland or Alsace, which is linguistically German, if dubiously German in certain other ways. So those folks come over between roughly 1710 and the revolution. And they they come especially because of the absolute devastation, particularly economically, of much of the Rhineland. That they practice a form of inheritance. And this is going to sound arcane until you realize what America is by contrast with a, with common law, they practice something called partible inheritance. So that if you're a farmer and you have kind of a normal farm, you don't have a vineyard. Vineyards in the Rhineland can actually work with this. They don't need to be huge. But if you're raising almost anything else, when you die, you have four sons. Well, you have to split it up among your four sons and maybe among also some of your daughters or you know their husbands. And that's going to cause extreme 
fracturing of inheritance, extreme fracturing of wealth, fracturing of the ability to make a living, and it will also rocket land prices up. Yeah, that, and that's not that's not everywhere in Germany, but that's the reality for most of the people who are coming. Yeah, in the and, and it's always interesting to me, and I, you just wonder what the first settlers felt when, you know, this is true in England, true in Germany, true in most of, um, you know, that part of Europe that the farmland is not where you live necessarily. You're going to live in the village, and then your your farming parcels are going to be outside of the of the village area. Then you're going to come to America where just because of the makeup of the country, you're going to be living and homesteading in a way that you never would have before. So even the farmers who are going to come in both waves are going to have a very different time of, the, uh, time of it. Right, exactly. And when they come here, the experience, even if they are indentured servants, which has a time limit. So difference between indentured servitude and slavery is just that legally there's theoretically, there's not really a difference in treatment necessarily, but legally there's a time limit on indentured servitude. So if you get to America and you are completely impoverished, you sell yourself into indentured servitude. Sometimes that's even your quote being sold to your family member. So that's basically like an apprenticeships work the same way. Yeah. When they're like cousin Matthew came over here. Yeah. That's why he came over. Right. We bought him or something like that. Yeah. Right. And, and so, uh, it sounds like we're being very soft on the Irish here. We're not. Uh, we're just saying. <laughs> we, yeah, I mean, there, there is a difference, right? It's not, it's not exactly the same thing as slavery, where you are bound for life and your descendants are bound to remain under the control of the master. You have a master, but the time will come when, when you won't or when you don't. So when they come, I, I think maybe the closest modern analogy would be somebody coming from California, and you don't even move to Texas, you move to Kansas or Ohio, somewhere that relative to where you came from, real estate is extremely cheap. Now that's not mm-hmm. going to hold with farmland, but you got to work with me here. Yeah. And well, the experience of just having that much yeah. space and personal well, yeah. freedom is, is amazing to people. And, and in some places, the farmland will be relatively cheap, but it's yeah. not good land. Right. And in some cases, it'll be free, but that's going to come later. That'll come later, right. It's it's safe to say and fair to say that this these first wave of German immigrants do properly belong to America in a way that the later ones will not. Uh, they're going to be integral to, or, you know, several notable German families will be integral to the founding of the, of the American Republic. And I'm going to shoot a dog here, and I'm sorry, guys, but German was never, ever truly considered for the official language of the United States of America. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that story has to do with the first speaker of the house who is one of the descendants of one of the sons of Henry Muhlenberg who's really the patriarch of the <laughs> Lutheran Church in what is now the United States of America. Yeah, and so we'll follow that under Luther invented the Christmas tree. Right. <laughs> right. Um, or wrote O Christmas tree. So. Right. But the, the debate was not about whether German was going to be the official language because the Germans, although they're going to compose roughly one third of Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania is a large populous colony and has the largest city in the colonies in Philadelphia. It, they still only compose maybe 10% of the population at independence. So they're bigger than the Dutch in New York. Uh, they're much bigger than the Huguenots who are the French Protestants. Although Huguenots definitely punch above their weight in American history, but they're not so big that anybody's debating whether German's going to be an official language, whatever that means. What they debated was whether they would, like Pennsylvania was doing at the time, print legal documents, bills, presidential declarations, things like that, also in German. Right. And Peter Muhlenberg speaks against that. So that's that's what was up for debate. It wasn't whether German was somehow going to be the language that everyone was into because by the time the the first wave stops at about the re- revolution for obvious reasons, you're now going to have two to three generations who have grown up in the United States or what is now the United States and a process of acculturation takes place for any group that is insufficiently large to just perpetuate itself as such. 
So outside of what we have yeah. mentioned before as what you would call the Pennsylvania Dutch country, the Deitscherei in German, where they compose an overwhelming majority of very rural counties outside of that area. So east of it in Philadelphia yeah. or west and, of it in the rest of Pennsylvania. And that they're first not, wave, they're going to assimilate. Gonna, yeah, that first wave is also going to be predominantly Protestant, especially <laughs> in Pennsylvania, which is going to make it easier for them to assimilate. Right, yeah. The number of Catholics is extremely small, yeah, and that has negligible. to do with the sources of the emigration. Yeah. Right. Yep. So then what, what we're really concerned with is this uh, second wave. And so how a lot of our listeners' families get here. Right. Yeah. And the, the second wave is vastly larger than the first, both absolutely, but also relatively for the places that they settle. So absolutely, the numbers are just so much bigger because Germans or let's say people in German-speaking places, Germany not existing as a unified country until 1871, but we'll just say Germans are not only freer to move, but also can move much more quickly. So whereas if you were trying to get from the Rhineland to Pennsylvania in 1730, you would take a series of boats, you would pay dozens and dozens of distinct tolls just on the Rhine River, and then you would have to wait either in the Netherlands or Britain and hope that someone would be willing to take you on because you probably had exhausted your funds by the time you got to a seacoast. In the 19th century, you could get on a train from almost anywhere and because Germany develops railroads very rapidly. You can get on a train or a steamboat and you get to a port and then you can take a ship directly to America. Yeah. We ran in some very interesting ports in America, too. <laughs> yeah, your, your two big ones for the Germans are going to be New York and New Orleans, respectively. Yeah, and you know, people forget about what, what a port city New Orleans was for immigration. You don't associate it with that. Right, right. The, the thing you, you're trying to do is that you're going to get, maybe on another railroad, but more often and certainly earlier, 1830s, 40s, 50s, you're trying to get on a steamboat that's going to get you into the middle of the country, either via the Erie Canal and the Great Lakes or up the Mississippi directly from right. New Orleans. But that's going to fill in the whole, what is at that time called the Northwest or the West or sometimes the Southwest in the case of maybe Arkansas. But it's going to fill up land that is largely empty at that time. And because of which and because of how lucrative it is to sell land to emigrants who don't really know what they're buying, but they do know that they're buying something, it's going to fill up that part of the country, including a lot of central and eastern Missouri, with yeah. German immigrants. And the second wave is going to last, I think, earnestly, at least until the 1880s, late 1880s. Yep. yep. Um, but they're started essentially by what are going to be known as the 48ers. So people who... in <laughs> one way or another participated in the revolutions, revolutions, plural of 1848. So right. Europe's falling apart in 1848. It, <laughs> it is in so many regards. Um, everyone is worried, even if he doesn't have a revolution on his hands. Yeah. And, and that's, so you're going to get Germans, you're going to get Hungarians, you're going to get Czechs, you know, people forget about the Czechs being around. That's why you'll find like random, you know, Czech historic sites in Iowa, for example. Right. Yeah. Dvorak slept here. Yeah, and yeah. they're really proud of that. Well, I mean, whatever it takes, you know. Is that Spillville? Is that right? Is that what it I, is? I always forget. And until I'm like, for whatever reason, on the road out there, and then, oh, hey, Czech Heritage Museum. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I've, I've actually been to that, and then I was like a little skeptical about, okay, so you guys, you're a lot like Germans, but you just don't speak German. Is that right? Well, it's kind of the same know, thing. But obviously, with, I didn't say that out loud. It's like the same things with the Hungarians, you know? Yeah, it's true. It's true. At least they speak, you know, whatever, you know, pre-Aryan invasion. <laughs> right. They're, they they're, they're holding on to it. And Hungary today is still doing well. Good. Keep, keep up the good work, Hungary. You, <laughs> right. you weathered the, the Iron Curtain era, and now you're doing, you're doing pretty good. They did, yeah. But, yeah, the, the second wave, the, the term 48ers is, is actually from Germans. So one thing that we'll find throughout this episode is that Germans are going to bring with them completely different, not only words like 48ers, 48er, 
but also they're going to bring completely different political concepts. So a 48er you could think of as, as perhaps left-wing or progressive or liberal in some general sense, and we'll describe some of those attitudes. Yeah, they've got these new ideas. Right, but, but, it's, but it's really nowhere on the American political spectrum. No. Yeah, and I mean, what the Germans uh, bring to Missouri is a very different political persuasion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're so if they say, "Well, I'm a I'm a liberal," what they mean is that they're non-monarchist, or right. they say that they are a free thinker. Well, that didn't mean openly attacking religion usually in early America, but for them, it does. Yeah. So they're coming from a completely different cultural and political setting directly into America. And then the reason that they that the 48ers provide leadership is because usually they are better educated and therefore integrate much more rapidly, but then also dominate the media that is entirely in German, which is burgeoning at the same time. Weekly papers, daily papers, even in the case of a place like St. Louis. And so although the po- the population coming over is overwhelmingly Lutheran and Roman Catholic, a good index of that would be even today's demographics of the state of Nebraska, a place settled roughly around the time beginning to be settled before the Civil War. Nebraska is the only state where the LCMS is one of the top two denominations. It's number two. The top denomination is Catholic. So that when you get overwhelmingly German places, you're going to get places that are largely Lutheran and largely Roman Catholic. But that doesn't mean that the newspapers that they read or the people who are voted into office in their name, like Karl Schurz or Henry Borneman, the people who will lead them in battle, for example, when they form union regiments, that those people share those convictions, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, whatever. Their leadership let's say politically speaking, is going to be overwhelmingly irreligious, consciously so, and much better educated than the general population. So, you know, they get over here at the beginning of the 1850s. They won't quite have children born on the continent old enough to serve in the Civil War, but they'll have children young enough that they bring over. They're young enough to have lived here. And so you're going to even get internal family struggles. You're going to start to see the generational gap uh, and the thinking gap, for lack of a better term, by the time you get to 1861 and the Camp Jackson affair. But before we get into that, we we then have, okay, so you get here, you've had a little over a decade before Civil War breaks up. So Missouri is a slave state, and the Germans are going to have a little bit of a different view on this. Yeah, because Missouri Missouri is such a great test case because it's really the only place that Germans settle in any numbers that is a slave state. Yeah. Outside of Missouri, there there are German settlements in Texas, no doubt about it, before the Civil War. (laughs) Our Fredericksburg boys getting like antsy right now. Yeah, right. Fredericksburg, New New Braunfels, is that how they say it? I don't. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, and Texans always want to feel special. Great. Uh, More power to you, whatever. But Texas is so big (laughs) and so relatively sparsely populated compared to many states in the South. So when you get to the Civil War, you have to remember your absolutely least important state is Florida. So that would be like the opposite of today. Right. And, you know, Texas is only not Mexico for a little while now. Yeah, like 20 years. Right. Yeah. So it's just not well, my favorite. Wise. My favorite things are Texans who don't believe in, in secession, but they're like, except for Texas. Cause you know, we have a, we have a precedent. We were our own country. Like, sure. <laughs> sure Ironically, the, uh, the Supreme court ruling from the 1870s about the legality of secession at the beginning of the civil war is actually about Texas. So when right. the Supreme court said it is illegal to secede from the union, they were talking specifically about Texas. Right. <laughs> Whatever you think of that, they were talking about Texas. So Right. Yeah, so so Missouri is a great test case here and it's important when we said before, you know, abolition is a very unusual yeah, very small fringe position. position. Yeah. Right. Here's 
just to sketch that out in the case of the Germans, here's what that looks like, right? Is that the Germans who do own slaves are going to own them in a pattern that we described earlier as what you could, what's sometimes called an upper South manner of slavery or way of practicing slavery. And that is relatively small numbers dispersed yeah. over farmsteads. And it's still, you know, I mean, it's the truth that, okay, even, even if you average everything out, putting the large plantations of the deep South into this, the average slave owner is something like three to four slaves. Right. And, right. and you'll, you'll find huge numbers of households with one. Right. Yeah. Right. Correct. And, and that, and that, includes right like you said mississippi alabama sugar plantations in louisiana so if you take that out of the equation you're just thinking about the state of missouri that that number is probably going to be even even lower the number of germans who own slaves is pretty small and if you're really interested in this stuff the the book to find is by walter camp hefner maybe we'll put it in the show notes called germans in america a concise history He's from Missouri originally. I, might, I think he might have been raised in Missouri Synod. He's kind of a standard academic at this point. But what he describes is that the Germans who do own slaves own them basically because white labor is vastly more expensive than slavery. That's their rationale. It's a sheerly economic rationale and really doesn't affect well, their it's, attitudes. It's, it's buy once, cry once. Yeah, right. And so... That, you know, I mean, in some ways, and you can you can read. Camp Hefner made his career editing German immigrant letters, so that's throughout this book. And what's interesting is the Germans actually are just attitudinally more sympathetic to blacks than native-born whites. <laughs> so well, yeah. this isn't really like a, you know, this isn't their their use of slavery is a is a sheerly economic calculation, right? And in Missouri, you don't have these large plantations. You anyway. don't. You don't. Yeah. Your, your cash crop for much of the 19th century in Missouri is hemp, which is raised for making ropes and stuff like that, not, not for dispensary purposes the way it would be today. Right. The hemp industry, of course, destroyed by the paper industry a few years later. Or should, should I say the paper magnates, the newspaper <laughs> magnates. Right. And, I mean, you know, people just forget how simple it is this is cheaper to do so we're going to do that mm-hmm. you know the, they're not thinking about the plight of the poor you know tribesmen that was sold by the enemy tribes and sold to a tribe of a different kind and then and then brought over here it, those are just not in in the in the primary sources no they're not and at least as far as what, what a concern is no not at all and the reopening of a foreign slave trade source from Africa was a proposition of kind of your, your opposite of the abolitionists, which are the fire eaters in the South. And, but that wasn't really politically viable, not even during the Confederacy because the Confederacy didn't have the naval power to do such a thing if they had wanted to do such a thing. So a lot of our thinking about the slave trade is based on, realities that you can find maybe in the it's like a combination of we think of the trade aspect of it in terms of the 18th century like people actually still actively coming from africa and then we usually think of the day-to-day life aspect of it in terms of the 19th century in the mississippi delta and the problem there is that those two times obviously don't match with each other and then they therefore they also don't match what was going on in a person's life at any given time yeah, so the Huns are going to come over, and um, or I'll say a Fritz or a Jerry, something a little nicer. <laughs> and what will uh, just looking at the time for how long it's taken for an, an anti-German <laughs> slur to come out here? Go ahead. You know, how are they going to to view the American political system? They are going to not really grasp it. And one of the places you can go to understand this is that if you have German, you can go find, I think it's all freely available somewhere on the internet, the old The Lutheran paper uh, yeah. in German, or even the theological journal Lehre und Vera. And that's a good test case because it's sitting there. It's a little less obscure than other things. And what you can see there is that they think of America really purely in terms of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. 
So there are things that Americans are debating that are not really necessarily contained inside a document anywhere, except if you want to see them there in, in glancing form. So your best example here is the one that's going to rip apart both Missouri and Kansas, and that is the doctrine of popular sovereignty, mm-hmm. which was applied to the slavery debate in this way, that eventually the Democratic Party, particularly as this is articulated by Stephen Douglas, is going to say, look, the Missouri Compromise from 30 years earlier than this is well and good, but you know it doesn't capture the idea that if New Mexico, for example, is almost entirely settled from the South, which it was once it's owned by America, the people who come right. from America are coming from the South, then they should, and the Indians and the Hispanics are practicing slavery of their own kind, they should be able to, d- to vote on that. Okay, mm-hmm. They should be able to vote on that. And in California, they should be able to vote on that. And in fact, they did, their legislature did vote on whether or not to practice slavery in California. So that's the doctrine, right? That's not really anywhere like inside the Constitution. It doesn't say like when we have something that is splitting us all up, we should decide it based on traditions of local democracy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and look, the Germans have kind of a looser interpretation of this, right? Of the of the, of the Constitution. The, the Germans are not strict constructionists in an uh, in an American sense, or like in a you know Jeffersonians versus whatever non-Jeffersonians are called at any given time sense. Definitely, they don't. I mean, it, it, this is this is where, like, you know, if you go to a foreign country, you realize you're not just missing text. Like, if you can't really speak the language very well, or you can't read very well, what you're what you're largely missing is context, and you can gain that over time. But the thing that I think is so much not just a second language in the sense of the words that you speak, but a second language in the sense of how life operates are the contexts that come with life that make certain questions seem urgent or certain answers seem obvious. And the Germans don't have that with this question of, okay, are we going to, because here are the stakes and these are not stakes that a German immigrant's going to feel in Missouri. Are we going to let our lives be decided by the elites on the eastern seaboard, or are we going to decide for ourselves what we want to do? I mean, like, what what is somebody that just got here from Hanover really feel about that? And I, I do mean yeah. like emotionally, on an emotional level. Sure. Does does he have? He has no feelings about that. Right. Yeah. He's just come over. He's like, I just want to plow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. He came. You know. He's. Germans are going to come here for overwhelmingly economic reasons. There are religious exceptions. There are some non-religious exceptions, but it's overwhelmingly economic. And so he's, if he's going to decide popular sovereignty, you know, he understands that this is what's going on. He's going to decide that maybe in a way that he thinks is constitutional. So here's a good example is that when the civil war starts and Missouri is having this secession crisis, we'll talk about in a little while the men of Trinity, what we now call Trinity Soulard, which is Walther's head church, let's say. And I'm using, I'm now inadvertently using, you know, fake English words straight from German. It's the Hauptgemeinde of the Gesamtgemeinde, you know, as you do. And so they're going to (laughs) debate what they're going to do about this secession crisis by reading a copy of the Constitution. Right or wrong, whether you think whether you're kind of <laughs> yeah. like a like a modern Republican and you're like, well, that's the way it's supposed to be, or you're like, that's you know that that's kind of you're missing some context here, right? right? That's their solution because the things that seem obvious or important to Americans from various sections of the country aren't to them, whether they're yeah. Lutheran or Catholic or Forty Eighters or whatever they are. Yeah, and so. Secession crisis is going to happen. Civil war is going to break out. I'm going to do your favorite thing that I do and recommend a movie. Yeah, um, there you go. But Ang Lee in '99 makes a movie called Ride with the Devil, uh, starring Tobey Maguire. You know the Spider-Man of 
you know, for many of our listeners. And um, it will deal with directly with a lot of this because the main character sees he's the son of German immigrants. He sees uh, the son of uh, one of the planters get executed by a Jayhawker and decides to join with a group of Missouri irregulars. And so he joins up with the Bushwhackers. There's some good scenes about the German angst uh, revolving around the Civil War and things like that. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good movie. It, did, it was a bomb at the box office, but it is worth watching because it's the only notable movie I can think of that deals with Germans in this period of American history. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you can probably find them here or there in some kind of Civil War movie or something, but... They're always, you know, on the fringes of the of the narrative. They are, yeah, they're on the fringes, and that that's that's for some reasons. I think, you know, let's just do a little bit of a test case thing with the Saxon immigration, so that we can get a better handle on <laughs> the. Uh, well, I mean, that's going to be, you know, everyone. Well, where does the LCMS fit into this? Nobody right. ever asks where the Wells fit into anything, but let's <laughs> see where the Missouri Senate fits. <laughs> Yeah, the wells, that's a whole different, as as they would admit, that's a whole different <laughs> can of worms. The Missouri Synod is the Synod of Missouri, Ohio, and other states. And we're not talking about the Ohio or the other states stuff today. The Missouri emigration, or, or what's usually called the Saxon emigration, happens in the late 1830s, comes up from New Orleans, and eventually centers on two poles that you're going to find throughout the story, which is the city of St. Louis, eventually and predominantly, as well as Perry County, Missouri. Right. Those folks are coming from Saxony. That's not a place that hardly anyone was coming from in the colonial wave, for example. And originally they resemble what are called in the literature on German emigration, Latin farmers. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> Those are, those are people who are in America because they kind of are, you know, they get, they get in so much trouble, they really have nowhere else to go. Okay. <laughs> right. And, we, <laughs> and, and we're very nice and docile nowadays, but we don't like to talk about the early days and just how weird it is. But there many such cases. It, <laughs> there, it, there are, yeah. If we're it, being honest, you know, like in the word fitly spoken days when we did hours and hours on weird American religion and, and uh, what the heck's going on in the 19th century, yeah. the LCMS fits squarely into the what happened here. And, it, and, it, it and it's, it, you know, it's providential that we end up being much more normal than we are, but the early <laughs> days are anything but normal. And they share a lot of the similarities of the new groups that pop up. Yeah. I mean, if I can say it this way, you know, honestly, the Latin farmers, of which there are settlements in many places, but Texas and Missouri have a lot of them, as well as Wisconsin. The Latin farmers are in some ways a lot more normal than the Saxon immigration in yeah. that they're coming... Well, they, they come for different reasons. They come for different reasons. They're they're trying to make a living. They probably want to say whatever they want to say, which certainly for all its vices in America in 1837, you could do that. You, you might get run out of town, but you could do it in a different town, Right. Right, just keep um, going until you find one that works. That's what last episode was about. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so the Latin farmers are going to integrate rapidly. The Saxon immigration doesn't for a couple reasons. One is they have absolutely no interest, either material interest or personal interest, in integration with the larger American population. I mean, we should probably explain why they're called Latin farmers. It's not because they were swarthy like David Apple or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's because they were speaking Latin. They were the, you know, the Friedinger. They were the... They, they were could speaking... speak Latin, but they yeah, really that... couldn't raise potatoes. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And oh, I, I, it's fascinating. Even down to the history of my parish, the people who know like zero farming experience, they're going <laughs> right. to come over and eh, let's give it a go. Yeah. I mean... And, and the, I, those are the yeah. options. You know, and I can't imagine. Okay, so you're like, let's just take Walter or Stefan's first, uh, or and only, you know, their voyage over. They've got three ships, one sinks. They land in New Orleans of all places in like the Marie Laveau era. So there's never a time when New Orleans wasn't cursed. You understand? Right. Yeah. And then you go up the Mississippi, which is kind of a haunted river anyway, and land in Missouri, which is not the most hospitable climate. And. Not 
Not for Germans, certainly. That's right? what I mean. Yeah, not for yeah, Germans. I mean, there's, so. there's some idea that people like to settle in places that look like the homeland. And right. that's completely untrue for Scandinavians until they get to the West Coast. So I'm dubious of the theory. But but America is a lot sunnier and a lot hotter than almost yeah, had, everywhere. Had they seen <laughs> a mosquito. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And that is actually a, a complaint. Yeah, the bugs right, right. are a major complaint. I mean, yep. they land in a place with like dragons in the water, and <laughs> I mean, you just you just you have to wonder what they were what what went into their mind when they when they first land. There is, we have some diaries. We do have some diaries, and Concordia Historical Institute just came out with Kestering's account of this accent immigration. I I haven't read it, but that's definitely something to pick up. If you're interested in this stuff, a couple things that we now think about the Midwest or Midwestern people or Midwestern Lutherans that are the opposite of the truth in the 19th century. One is they are not, by and large, people committed to a rural way of life or even familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Germans are relatively more urbanized than America, and Latin farmers as well as Missouri and the Lutherans will often try to get off the farm as soon as they can mm-hmm. because of the much better that they have more experience in cities and the economic prospects are a lot better, which is how St. Louis is going to come to matter much more yeah. than Perry County does. I mean, within a couple or three generations, they're going to be firmly settled as rural Americans. Right. But that takes yeah, a Yeah, that's while. going to increase over time. Yeah. Camp Hefner is really interesting on this because he has done large amounts of statistical analysis on surnames. And Mm -hmm. the thing that he measures is that the proportion of German surnames owning farmland has increased in every census since the 19th century. But in the 19th century was, was quite small. And because of the language barrier and because of the areas they settled and the colonies they found, they're going to find themselves cut off from the rest of America. That's also (laughs) going to, you know, that that's going to affect, affect the way they view all of the subjects we've been talking about. Yes, right. Yeah, so just give you an example on slavery, because this is one that is sort of known, sort of not, is that the Missouri Synod Lutherans, as well as almost all Roman Catholics, and certainly on an official level, have no opposition as such to slavery. It will be defended as a positive good by some, not in anything like the, the depth or effusiveness that you're going to get from like a Southern Presbyterian or a Southern Baptist. Because, no Thornwell amongst the right, amongst right. the Lutherans, right? Right. Yeah. No such thing, and and partly because they just don't have they don't have a stake in it. Um, <laughs> right. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. So they also don't have any particular commitment to a government to preserve it. So this well, is it's it's so foreign to a lot of modern ears because they think that every struggle outside of them is their own personal struggle. Yeah. Because yeah, well right, which is something I mean media media has a certain power to do that and the media is going to become much more fervent about many things obviously as the civil war approaches and then is carried on but I mean German or English but but Germans just don't have any personal stake either in getting rid of it because they don't feel it to be some kind of enormous moral evil the way modern people pretty much always do. At the same time, they don't really care if there's a government that's going to try to preserve slavery. That doesn't, it's like, why? <laughs> you know, yeah. why don't you just do the work yourselves? I have 10 sons. You know, why don't they just, you know, why don't your sons just do the work for you? So there's also, there's also family life patterns among Lutherans that Lutherans, I'm sure it's the case for Catholics too, that Anglo-Americans don't have, like the importance of retaining land. You know, if, if all the land that was once owned in Wisconsin by the likes of, you know, Pa Engels had been retained (laughs) by his descendants we wouldn't think of Wisconsin as a particularly German place. Yeah. Right. So Germans just, they don't, I mean, they're not looking at land the same way that the, that the American population is. Right. So that's going to lead us to the most notable event here, which is going to be the Camp Jackson affair. Yeah. Camp Jackson massacre, depending on who you are. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) you know, led by general Lyon, who's actually, I think the first union general killed. That's correct. 
He's killed at Wilson's Creek again, or Oak Hills, depending on who you, how you look at depending things. Depending on who you talk to. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, let's it, talk a bit about the Camp Jackson affair. Camp Camp Jackson affair. I first heard about from something that is, is just such a Missouri Synod approach to it is that the Missouri Synod debates whether a Confederate flag was raised above Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, basically to escape mobs. <laughs> The way that American flags would be raised above or or inside of Lutheran churches during World War One to escape mob vengeance, <laughs> or rainbow flags will be raised in in the current year. Right, exactly. Right, same same. Like, I mean, it's not like they. It's not like CFW Walter was sitting there thinking Jeff Davis is the finest man God has ever created, or something. I mean, it was al- like I, although I possibly want, true, he would. You know. <laughs> I, I don't want the seminary to be burned down. It, but it's disputed whether it happened even. But yeah. the, the context of it is that you're talking a little less than a month after Fort Sumter. So this is May 10th, 1861. And what's been going on is that the Missouri legislature voted against secession, but in a very Kentucky kind of a move, not to aid either side in what is obviously, and since Bull Run has already happened, first Manassas, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, Indeed. Uh, since that's already happened, there's going to be a war. They're trying to maintain neutrality. They're trying the Kentucky come Switzerland strategy at this time. The governor doesn't like that. Governor Mm -hmm. Jackson, governor Jackson is an avowed secessionist and wants Missouri out. So before camp Jackson was formed outside of St. Louis by about 700 men of the Missouri state guard who are sort of proto proto Confederate, every, Southern state that secedes has this moment where it, it has its own army, and then that army will somehow be brought into the Confederate army. They haven't; that hasn't yet happened because Missouri's not out definitively, and they're camped outside of the city of St. Louis. About seven hundred of them. They're there to do something that's already happened in the much more southern dominated part of Missouri, which is the Kansas City area, where the Liberty Arsenal in Liberty, Missouri, has already been seized. There's a vastly bigger arsenal in St. Louis that if they take it, they're going to have about 40,000 guns. Mm-hmm. In order to do that, they are shipping in, I think it arrives the day before the Camp Jackson affair. Secretly, several artillery pieces have been brought up the Mississippi, sent by President Davis to Governor Jackson, and they're going to use those to seize the feral arsenal. Now, if you are trying to stage a coup or, you know, whatever, you know, secrecy is of the essence. So this is still disputed to this day, but it's a good story. So I'm going to give it is that Captain Nathaniel Lyon is dissatisfied at Jefferson Barracks outside of St. Louis (laughs) with the conduct of his commanding officer, General Harney, who's in command of the Department of the West and basically is trying not to get anyone to kill anybody else. It's a, the tactic that a lot of guys adopted at Southern postings just before the Civil War, and it it never worked. They never retained federal property doing that. So right. Lyon suspects we're going to lose it all if we keep doing what Harney wants us to do. So Lyon, and here's what's debated, either does or doesn't wear the clothing of an elderly woman. <laughs> this this happens so many times in Civil War legends. Somebody well, is in drag. Yeah, the the whole yeah, and and the reason I'm being circumspect is because number one, I don't actually believe it's possible to know at this point. Because number two, this is what everyone says about everyone else who's ever being secretive. So they're going to say it about Davis when he tries to escape. They're going to say it about John Wilkes Booth. So right, everybody everybody is saying everybody else is wearing women's clothing. It used to be an insult, right? <laughs> right. But whatever he was wearing, Lyon goes into Camp Jackson and he's like, okay, this is an armed camp. (laughs) We can't, we can't actually do this anymore. And and St. Louis Arsenal is notable. Yeah. I mean, it's, and still in existence today, actually still used like the air force got it in the fifties, but it's still an active part of the military today. Well, there you go. I mean, I, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew it was there, you know, we have to, you know, call back to probably a couple weeks ago, the listener has to think of Missouri as the beginning of the West. Yeah. I mean, there's actually a monument to General Lyon at the arsenal. You can yep. see today. Okay, there you go. 
and now it's changed what it what it did but people you know people forget the confederacy did try to make their own arms and ammunition they just didn't have the manufacturing base right and even to this day the arms manufacturing base in america although in the last literally five years has started to shift toward the south it's still the northeast right uh, right. for those kinds of things right exactly and so but you know we don't have a whole hour for me to go into all the details of the uh confederate <laughs> sometimes manufacturing soon. attempts yeah we'll get there sometime soon that's gonna be on that's gonna be on the patreon yeah let us know in the discord if you want that level of detail <laughs> so lion lion is like oh okay this is this is not gonna this is this can't fly who is going to suppress this about six thousand union troops whatever that quite means right now in a state that's this divided, that's going to be composed probably maybe three out of every four of them or more are going to be German born. Part of the reason for that is when you have foreigners, you're going to get a different approach to the Southerners. So something that is maybe a little fairly well known is that there's this Christmas truce on the Western front in the first year of world war one and the guys play soccer and, you know, do Christmas things together. And then they're sent back to their trenches. You get incidents like that throughout the civil war, almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. There is relatively little, it depends on the unit, it depends on the guy, but there's relatively little personal animosity, partly because I've read enough of their letters on both sides. They they talk sufficiently like each other to misspell things in the same way. So everybody's <laughs> writing Warsh. Everybody. Maine, New York, Alabama, they're all washing their clothes. So there's relative fellow feeling here. Lion's going to have two sources for his guys, therefore, to do something that is, think about it, there's an armed military camp on the edge of St. Louis, and the citizens aren't doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. He's going to get largely Germans who may not even particularly speak English or, or speak it well or need to because they live in these ethnic enclaves, as well as from a source that is now totally forgotten, but really should not be. And that's called the Wide Awakes. Those are, those are going to be most of his American-born troops. The Wide Awakes were a kind of paramilitary arm of the Republican Party in the 1850s. They're important in things like election day riots and right. other civil disturbances. They're there to kind of provide muscle. Yeah, and their um their banner's really cool. It's a big eye. It's a big and eye. They get the banner with a big eye with like a drop mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. And Alan Pinkerton, who's a Scottish immigrant, but obviously English speaking, is gonna take the emblem of the wide awakes from right. the emblem of his detective agency the big yeah. open eye and it says we never sleep right see revelation of the method there you go <laughs> and so uh so lion has guys that are either extremely ideologically committed which is a fairly small number of people in st louis as well as germans who are going to be willing to take these roughly 700 guys and what they're going to do is they don't they don't you know shoot them or even attack them or anything they're going to march them into St. Louis to parole them. And paroling is something that's going to happen not very much in Missouri, honestly, because it's just going to be too nasty, but more in other theaters of the war. And that's when you basically take the guy's word that he's not going to take up arms against you again until perhaps a prisoner exchange, someone of equal rank or equal numbers, or maybe never again. But that's what a parole is. So you're not going to be taken as a POW. You're going to be sent home and we're going to rely on your word that you're not going to take up arms again. Obviously it's going to be broken sometimes, but a lot of times it wasn't. So that's what he's trying to do. They march them from camp Jackson into St. Louis and crowds form that are enormous. And because it's St. Louis, if a crowd is forming, this is a crowd of people that are either born or raised by people who were born in the South. They are yeah. not at all sympathetic to what the troops are doing. And they begin to throw rocks and other things you can imagine at the troops. Someone, and this is this is another thing, it's like lions, you know, women's clothing. You know, how did this happen? Why did this happen? 
the most popular, it doesn't mean it's true, but most popular story is that a drunk in the crowd fires a pistol and mortally wounds a man named Captain Bladowski. So just stop right there on that name. The fact that you have that last name, which is a very Eastern German name, where the names are, they could be Slavic, they could be German, they're kind of both. That's a new name in America. And that gives you some sense of how different these troops are going to be from your average Missourian. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. And, and, and so at that point, when Captain Bledowski is, is mortally wounded, the troops fire into the crowd. Now, what is completely disputed is, is not that they did that or even how many people they killed. It's why that was the reaction at that moment. Um, it's not maybe militarily necessary, but it is what they did. And when they fire into the crowd, they're doing something that some people would say at the time, and this is just the nature of historical memory, is not quite true, which is that this had never happened in the United States before. Something like this did happen with militia firing into crowds in certain riots that had happened about 10, 20 years earlier in different parts of the United States, especially suppressing an anti-Catholic riot in Philadelphia in 1844. So things like this had happened, but yes, not in these numbers and not that suddenly. Okay. Yeah. Where you get nearly 30 killed women and yeah. children fired upon. Right. That that's a new thing. That's a, because it's a crowd. It, it isn't just a group of threatening men. Right. And you're, yeah, you're, you're firing on civilians at that point. You're firing which, on civilians. Which, I mean, you were before, but... And also the American political climate is kind of at a fever pitch right now. And this is this is where the, the difference between a German political context and an American political context matters. In an American political context, the nature of a soldier is different than in a German political context. Mm-hmm. A soldier in American history, all the way down to once the militia turns into the National Guard, and then we could all possibly be conscripted during the world wars. In an American political context, regular soldiers are few and far between and generally impoverished, and it's not really a profession you want to follow. It's, a, it's great, and it's okay to be in the militia. And we've talked about the numbers of people, relatively speaking, especially in a place like Missouri, who were. But the idea that you would fire on American civilians is very strange. Even if they were doing something you didn't like, it's just beyond the pale. Yeah. Germans are coming from a completely different political culture. Being a soldier is not necessarily dishonorable. Conscription is not necessarily unknown. And speaking against the government is also, especially when the government is in your eyes morally right, as the union's going to seem to the vast majority of Germans anywhere in the United States. Speaking and, and acting against the government is not is is not in bounds. You just mm-hmm. can't and don't do that. They have different political traditions. They don't have the same concept of freedom of speech or or boldness of speech. You might well, it's say. something to consider because yeah. that kind of soldiery gets romanticized in those novels that people pretend to enjoy. You know, or or actually, the nineteenth century that kind of soldiery is especially in English literature, particularly Lampoon, but we've back read a lot of romanticism into it. Right. Yeah. And it, the, I mean, the, the idea that you could do this and this wouldn't be catastrophic, this would just be something, I mean, it's the irony here is if the troops are largely 48ers or 48ers sympathetic, what they're simply doing is what was done to them 15 years earlier or, you know, specifically 13 years earlier in their case, right? right? Is that the government doesn't agree that what you're doing is moral or, or right, and therefore can employ lethal force on you until you stop doing it. Yeah. That's the idea. And that is, that is their political culture. So, well, and fortunate for the union, they're going to get a lot of volunteers even. Right. <laughs> and some conscripts from cultures that are going to tolerate this. Right. So it's just a, it's just a totally different idea of what is fitting. And, and everybody knew that something like this would happen because the crowds were yelling various 
you know, pre-World War One ethnic slurs at the Germans as they were coming. I mean, everyone knew that the dividing line here was this ethnic dividing line. I don't think everyone knew that this is how German troops would react. Mm-hmm. So this is something where Lyon, who's actually a convinced abolitionist, is forming an alliance which will endure through the Civil War and to some degree after. And that is an alliance between what you might think of as liberal or leftist Germans with your most words are kind of failing me here because the paradigms are just so different, but maybe your most left wing Mm -hmm. Republicans or Northerners or American born, you know, Northerners. So this is going to be a key alliance in a place like Missouri, because when the Yankees can combine with the Germans in this specific case, that will, that will be a, a, powerful political force in a state that had been at least dubiously Southern. Right. So then from Camp Jackson, what is the political trajectory of the Germans then? The Germans are going to go off in a a couple directions that I think are basically going to, going to make clear why Missouri state both stays in the union, but also why Germans are going to fight in the union army in all kinds of units, not just Missouri units. In, in double proportion to their numbers. So they're about 5% of the population of the North are going to compose about 10% of all Union armies, all Union troops. Germans are going to be overwhelmingly Unionist for reasons that we mentioned earlier, especially because even if they do own slaves, they generally don't have the investments in slavery, literal and figurative, that wealthy Southerners do. Wealthy Southerners do, right? Right. They're also going to be overwhelmingly preponderant in what we now call, and this is my contention, is that the Midwest never becomes the Midwest without the Germans. Not culturally, not as a coherent geographic or geopolitical entity within the United States. It well, how else state. would Wisconsin become a so, you know, socialist without them? Right, yeah. I mean, Milwaukee is not going to have socialist mayors down to 1970 or whatever it was without the Germans. So they they compose a completely different and new political culture in the United States, even after assimilating linguistically. And that trajectory is one that I think, partly because Midwesterners themselves, as, as opposed to, say, Texans, are, are often unaware of their own history or don't know how it came to be or it just seems obvious or something, mm-hmm. are not aware what role is played in these things by... You know, originally a place like Wisconsin, for example, is going to be settled by New Englanders, but they're soon overwhelmed demographically by Germans. And in a way, Germans import new political problems, problems we didn't have before. Yeah, they they bring with them something that particularly we should pay attention to and and will set us up for further discussion down the pike. And that is a, a split over issues that America doesn't at the time have especially in the words of CFW Walther's writing on this, which we'll put in the show notes, communism and socialism. (laughs) Germans don't have any of that, or I'm sorry, Americans don't have any of that. They're not cognizant of a debate about the the ownership of the means of production, and they're not really (laughs) worried about it. We're debating, you know, whether banking is going to be free or somehow federally controlled or something, totally different paradigms. Germans are going to be fighting generally in German at this point, like between Henry Borneman, who edits the, the Western Advertiser in, in German, and Walther are going to be fighting about communism and socialism. So because Germans are bringing with them political paradigms that are going to be important as immigration picks up after the Civil War, it's fascinating to see it 20 years before, 10 years before the Civil War, because they have brought, even if they don't know much about popular sovereignty, they they have thought a lot about communism and Walter's saying, this is absolutely horrible. And in that way, he sets us up better for the future than a lot of American political discussions. Yeah, Walter is prescient, at least here. Yeah, yeah he, he is, right. And, he is. you know, it it's fair to say that the constitutional political upheavals of the Civil War and the Reconstruction era opened the gateway for communist and socialist influence in the United States government. Right. Yeah. So, um, so from these border conflicts in Missouri, we, there's a, there's a direct line all the way to McCarthy. 
there there is because I mean, it's not the only pipeline don't get me wrong it's, but yeah it's it's not but germans both socialist germans but also communistic germans and i do mean ethnic germans i'm not talking like jews or hungarians right, right. do play a role in introducing these ideas to the united states of america that without them they just wouldn't have we would just have a different set of problems a totally different set of problems <laughs> right so as we're coming up to the end of this episode any final words as we prepare to head into kansas as we go into kansas you need to forget about germans for a little bit and that is because a lot of the difficulties that are going to play out through the rest of this series are ones that will effectively be put on pause or just obliterated by the scale and the difference of the problems that Germans as an immigration wave, but also everybody else who will follow after the civil war is going to bring with them. And that's going to fundamentally change America in a way that honestly, despite my own interest in it, Kansas bleeding Kansas doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you have been listening to a brief history of power. I'm Willie Grills here with Dr. Kuntz. You know where to find us. The period of Lutheran orthodoxy produced the most profound, doxological, and God-honoring theology the world has ever known. For too long, the literary works of Lutheran orthodoxy have remained locked away as cumbersome PDFs in gigantic databases, as dusty volumes in rare book rooms, or as expensive collector's items. But the Fathers of Lutheran Orthodoxy Project is committed to putting them back into the hands hearts, and minds of Christians everywhere at affordable prices. To find out more, visit us on Facebook and Lulu at Fathers of Lutheran Orthodoxy. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? 
Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. Thank you.